Amen. Certainly could have been what Israel sang upon arriving in Egypt because they were as good as dead, but through God's sweet provision, they were alive. And we're going to read more about that this morning. In fact, turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 47. I'd like to read it. It's the, it's the biggest draft of fresh air we've had, I think, since leaving Genesis 2. Uh, I'll say more about that in a moment, but uh, this is a chapter that's filled with blessing. So Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read all 31 verses. Hear God's word. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now notice this in verse 13. But there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Pharaoh and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with the food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. 
The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us the seed that we may live and not die, and that land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph, Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt that it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. And they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Thus far, God's word. Well, throughout the Joseph portion of our study in Genesis, we have come to a number of hopeless turns, seemingly hopeless turns. Uh, Joseph is thrown into a pit, hopeless. Joseph is sold into slavery, hopeless. Joseph is cast into prison, hopeless. Joseph is forgotten in prison, hopeless. And yet, beginning in chapter 41, everything begins to change. In chapter 41, Joseph is surprisingly elevated from prison to the position of prime minister. In chapters 42 through 45, Joseph was surprisingly reunited with the brothers who had sold him into slavery. And then in chapter 46, Jacob is reunited with his son, whom for the previous 20 years he thought was dead. What a reunion that must have been. In April 2006, while I was serving at campus as campus pastor at Taylor University, uh, there was a horrid van accident 
on nearby Interstate 69 that took the lives of four students and a staff member. And so within a week of that tragedy, I was in the car with three of my colleagues and we traveled north into Michigan and over the Upper Peninsula, uh, through Wisconsin, into Illinois, back to Indiana, uh, attending memorial gatherings for each one of the victims all along the way. And I especially remember meeting the Sirac family in Gaylord, Michigan, uh, during the visitation for their daughter, Whitney. And I, I vividly remember uh, exchanging, uh, or rather offering my condolences to Whitney's parents, Newell and Colleen, and then solemnly walking past their, their daughter's casket. I, I remember it was a kind of a blonde hardwood casket. Well, with such a vibrant memory of that moment, you can imagine how surprised I was to learn about a month and a half later that on the day that I met the Syrax and, and paid my last respects to their daughter, Whitney was actually lying in a hospital bed almost three hours away in Grand Rapids. In fact, even before attending Whitney's memorial, I had unknowingly visited her in the hospital to which she had been airlifted. But I naturally thought, along with the family that was attending her, that she was their daughter, Laura, the student for whom Whitney had been confused at the accident site. So uh, what a day it was when the sophomore whose memorial I had attended in the springtime was back on campus for the fall term. I mean, that was an unforgettable reunion. And yet, that meeting was more than likely just a small taste of what the reunion was like between Jacob and Joseph. Uh, take a look at chapter 46, uh, verse 29. We read, then Joseph prepared his chariot. Joseph prepared his chariot. Not standard operating procedure for a high-ranking officer, but certainly for a son who hadn't seen his father in two decades. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. Joseph presented himself to Jacob and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good long while. For Joseph, that reunion uh, no doubt touched a primal core deep within his person since Jacob had clearly been the one to whom affection and favor had been shown when, when he was just a boy. And for Jacob, the reunion must have been surreal since Joseph's arrival, uh, as, as it's related here in the text, is, is grammatically uh, framed in a fashion that's only used elsewhere to describe what happens when a person comes face to face with God. I mean, he was overwhelmed. The last time he saw his boy was with that colored coat. And now here he comes in another colored coat, the vestments of the royal court, uh, along with an entourage. This was his son. This was his salvation. It was all overwhelming. So as we approach the end of what really has been a, 
a pretty tumultuous story. The, the dark skies are clearing, and the seas are calming, and there's a fresh wind that's filling the sails of God's people as they begin a new day in Egypt. And as we'll see, the blessings abound. Blessings abound. In fact, what I'd like us to see this morning are three blessings, one in each section of this uh, larger portion of scripture here. The blessing of God's power, that's the first thing we'll see in chapter 46, beginning in verse 31 and then through 47, 12. Then the blessing of God's grace, that begins in 47, 13 through 28. And then the blessing of God's promise in chapter 47, verse 29 to the end of the chapter. And here's what I want us to see in all of this. There is no evil that is so great that God's blessing is not greater still. There is no evil so great that God's blessing is not greater still. I mean, already God's blessing has proven greater than the evil and the resulting hopelessness in the story of Joseph. The pridefulness in the Adam and Eve story, ugliness in the Cain and Abel story, devastation in the Noah story, dysfunction in the Abraham and Sarah story. And not only was God's blessing greater in each one of these stories, but God's blessing is grateful, uh, greater than any of the hopelessness, the pridefulness, the ugliness, the devastation, the dysfunction in your story. He is. And if you have a hard time believing that, well, you're in good company since not everyone that we focused on in this book of Genesis could readily see it either. And that's why time and again, God clearly and mightily proved himself faithful to them in order that he might achieve his good purposes. In fact, Genesis 47 in the Old Testament is a lot like Romans 8.28 in the New Testament since it reveals the good toward which all the difficulties in the preceding chapters had been working among those who were called according to God's purpose. There was and is no evil so great that God's blessing is not greater still. So that's the way ahead this morning. And the first of the blessings at which I want us to look at is the blessing of God's power. The blessing of God's power, and that comes to us in three parts. The first part, uh, beginning in chapter 46, verse 31, we see that Joseph prepared representative members of his family to meet Pharaoh by briefing them on court protocol. So in in verses 31 and 32, he he told them, here's what I'll say uh, about you to Pharaoh. And then in verse 33, uh, here's then what Pharaoh is going to ask you. And then in verse 34, he tells him, then here's how you will respond to Pharaoh. So this, this, this kind of protocol is, is not unusual even today. Uh, when a past president of my undergraduate 
alma mater was invited to meet a North African emperor, he was briefed ahead of time on the protocol that he would follow. Um, uh, When you enter the emperor's presence, stop and bow. When he summons you forward, you move into the room halfway, stop and bow again. About 10 years ago on a spring break visit to Washington, D.C., my family and I had the unusual privilege of visiting a member of the president's cabinet. Not with a group of other people, but it was just just the five of us. And it, it was a meeting for which I seem to recall we were briefed on protocol before arriving. What time to get there? Uh, what to call this member of cabinet? Uh, how the meeting would probably go? Uh, begin with a photograph, be taken into the office, uh, this and that, and then, then we'd be done. And this seems to be what's happening here at the end of chapter 46. Joseph is briefing them on court protocol. Part two of this section, beginning at the outset of chapter 47, we see that Joseph and his brothers met with Pharaoh according to the rehearsed protocol. So in verse one, Joseph introduced Pharaoh to his brothers as planned. Verse three, Pharaoh responded to Joseph's brothers as planned. And then in verse three and following, Joseph's brothers answered Pharaoh almost as planned. They got a little wordy in there, uh, had to reel it back in. But no, you know, when they left, as they left their meeting, they did so having been granted the land for which they'd asked. In fact, because it had been granted to them by Pharaoh, it could never be taken away. And because of that land's isolated location, it would lead to the preservation of their native tongue, their ethnic unity, and their God-honoring traditions throughout the years and the centuries to come in Egypt. But not only had they left with their ask, but they were given something for which they didn't ask. They they were given jobs. And those jobs were given by uh, Pharaoh's appointment. And that involved charge over all of the royal livestock. In fact, these jobs made them officers of the crown, which according to Gordon Wenham, was an unusual status and privileged protection not usually afforded to aliens. And notice that all of these blessings came to the brothers through Joseph. It's not as if Pharaoh said all these things and sent them on their way. He responded to the brothers by way of Joseph, by way of the favored brother. Take a look at the end of verse four where the brothers completed their request to Pharaoh with these words. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now notice, then Pharaoh said, not to the brothers, but to Joseph. Pharaoh answered them through him. This one whom the brothers had brutalized is now the source of their blessing. And their dreams beyond wildest measure Uh, Clearly, a a picture of Christ, whom we once brutalized, and now through whom we receive God's forgiveness from sin and blessings beyond belief. 
Well, in part three of this section, beginning in verse seven, we see that after his brothers departed, Joseph introduced his father, Jacob, to Pharaoh. And this is the meeting of two worlds. Uh, not, not, not quite a George Costanza worlds collide, but you, you get the idea. These fellows are opposites. Jacob was a man of the field. Jacob lived in uh, dwellings that were collapsible and portable. His work was raw and dirty. Whereas Pharaoh was a man of the city. Uh, his dwelling was strong and permanent. His work was clean and refined. You know, that cabinet member that I mentioned uh, earlier, he, uh, he worked out of a tremendous office. It was an office that was built back in the uh, 1930s by a member of Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet who wanted to have a bigger and better office than any of his colleagues. So what he did is he sent some of his minions out to visit the office of every other cabinet member, and they, they came with their measuring rods and, and, and whatever else, so that when he built his office, he wanted it to be twice as great in every way. And it was. Uh, square footage, greater. Height of the ceiling, greater. Every other cabinet member had a fireplace. He put in two. It, it truly was and is awesome, so much so that when the president for, president for whom this cabinet member uh, worked came into his office for the first time, he'd never been there before, he was visibly taken back. I mean, it's far bigger than the Oval Office. Well, it, it surely could have been that way when Jacob entered into Pharaoh's presence. Wow, wow, but it wasn't, it wasn't. To be sure, Pharaoh had already blessed Jacob and he had done so richly. I mean, he'd promoted his favorite son to prominence. He had sent famine relief back to Canaan. Uh, he, he had invited Jacob's family to settle anywhere in the land of Egypt, even the best of the land. But as great as all that was, Jacob blessed Pharaoh with an even greater and more powerful blessing. We see it there in verses 7 and 10. Though, as he put it, few and evil have been the days of my life. So the question is, how, how is it that humble Jacob's blessing was greater and more powerful than that of exalted Pharaoh? Well, consider the history behind Jacob's blessing. In chapter 12, verse 3, the Lord promised uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's a promise that, that the Lord uh, reaffirmed to Abraham in 1818 and 22:18. He spoke again to Jacob's father, Isaac, in 26:4, and then spoke it to Jacob himself. So he had, he had heard these words from the mouth of God. It was, as it were, dominical. 
Pharaoh's blessing, though, on the other hand, only endured as long as his favor and that of his successors lasted, which we know from Exodus 1, beginning in verse 8, would one day run out because there came a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph and all of that which had been done was undone. Jacob's blessing endured forever because Jacob's blessing, it it didn't originate with him, but with the God who endures from generation to generation to generation. And what that tells me is that on the scales of eternity, the, the blessings of this world and the power with which they're accompanied are not weighed according to their size, but rather their source. The blessings of this world, in terms of their power, aren't weighed according to their size, but rather their source. You don't need an advanced degree. You don't need a bully pulpit. You don't need some kind of position of authority to speak enduring words of blessing into the life of another person insofar as those words you speak, their source are found in those of the living God. I was recently thinking about this in terms of my own life and and how some of the words that have most memorably shaped me as a person and and the course that I've taken over the years weren't spoken by some hooded academician at a convocation where great things were being said and done. But really, they were spoken spontaneously in modest settings by humble persons according to God's word. And I can remember them specifically. I remember in the 80s being spoken to by a man over a cup of coffee down in Julian, California. I remember in the 90s being prayed over by a man on the second floor of a building in downtown Sydney, Australia. In the 2000s, words spoken to me along a river walk in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. What I mean to say by all of this is, is, is simply that we can't be fooled by the scene before us. A weak Jacob, weak Jacob, pronounced a more powerful blessing than the mighty Pharaoh, and so do you, as long as you lovingly and thoughtfully speak God's words into the lives of your family members, uh, fellow believers, friends, and co-workers. I'm going to take it a step further. Just a word for you parents. Don't be tempted to believe that God's word has lost its power to your child's gaming or uh, iTunes playlist or friends because there's, there, there's no power so great that God's words and God's blessing are not greater still, more powerful. So keep on thoughtfully, keep on lovingly speaking those words, singing those words, praying those words, living those words, those enduring, powerful words of God 
before your children. They may appear like, like the weasened Jacob against the backdrop of this powerful word, but their effect will be far greater than the allurements of the day. So that's the first blessing in this passage, the blessing of God's power. Second blessing that just outstrips the evil of this world is the blessing of God's grace. The blessing of God's grace, that begins in verse number 13. The height to which Egypt rose in the abundant years accentuated the depth to which it descended during the famine. Uh, Think of it like this. Um, You've got a 16-foot ladder and a 16-foot pit. You fall off the ladder, that's one thing. Fall into the pit, that's another thing. But if you fall off the ladder into the pit, that's 32 feet. That's life-changing. That could be life-ending. That's like falling off a two-story building. So it's no wonder then that the famine's severity is, is described in these uh, uh, very severe terms there in verse number 13. Uh, take a look. There was how much food? No food in the land. The famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished. That's to say things were not only bad, but they were getting worse all the time. But just as the height of Egypt's plenty accentuated the depth of their need, so Egypt's need highlighted God's grace and that through the person of Joseph. I mean, think about it. I I, I mentioned this about three weeks ago or so. While Egypt and the rest of the world were reveling in their abundant todays, they they were tying on another one. God was making provision for their needy tomorrows. Not by preparing a man of greed, but rather a man of grace. And and you've got to see the grace with which Joseph handles all of these situations here in this second section. So um, he was an honest man. People got what they paid for. For their money, he gave them grain. Their livestock, he gave them food. For their land and service, he gave them seed. And he was true. He was true to Pharaoh. That is, what Joseph gathered for his boss was given to his boss. So the money that he collected was given to Pharaoh. The land that he acquired was given to Pharaoh. The people that he employed were all given to Pharaoh. Joseph was honest, he was true, he hadn't set up a slush fund into which he was skimming money for his own use later on. He wasn't abusing those in his charge. In fact, he was kind. Verse 24, he kindly allowed the people to keep 80% of their crops, which was more than the usual amount um, by ancient Near Eastern standards. And, and he did this with families in mind. Or as he put it, yourselves, your households, and even your little ones. Verse 26, he kindly enacted a statute. I found this interesting. Joseph enacted this statute that guaranteed that Pharaoh would receive that 20% grain tax in perpetuity. 
In verses 22 and 26, he kindly protected the Egyptian priests from losing their court-appointed land and salary in the midst of the famine. So by God's grace and that through Joseph, everyone in that day was blessed. To be sure, Pharaoh uh, and his court and his people were blessed. As one scholar put it, the happy result in Egypt was that the coffers were overflowing with foreign wealth, bolstering their economy. As the famine worsened, everyone in Egypt was equitably fed. And the 20% tax, no one complained about it. Joseph was Egypt's national hero. They would all be dead without him. And in fact, without equivocation, without qualification, without reluctance, without reservation, that's what they said by acclamation. In verse 25, you can see it there. You, Joseph, have saved our lives. Because he had. That had been dead without him. But not only was Egypt blessed by God's life-saving grace, so were his people. This refugee family that faced certain death in Canaan and, and filled the equivalent of of six passenger vans in their relocation down to Egypt, now not only survived, but thrived in their new space. So much so that when you get into Exodus chapter one, verse seven, it says that the, the land was filled with them. I mean, they were fruitful and they multiplied. There is no obstacle, brothers and sisters, there is no obstacle that is so great that God's grace is not greater still. It, it was true in that time through Joseph, and it's true for all time in and through Jesus. And so my question is, what's your obstacle? What's the famine that you're facing today? The Egyptians were desperate. In fact, they were willing to do what it took to find relief. How willing are you? Will you give it all up in order to get what you could not otherwise by way of the Lord through Christ? Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. So that's the second blessing in this passage, the, uh, the, the blessing of God's grace. Third and final blessing that exceeds the evil of this world is the blessing of God's promise, and that's found in chapter 47, beginning in verse 29. Uh, Joseph lived with his father for 17 years prior to being sold into slavery, and then he lived with them 17 more years after their reunion. When Jacob was about to die, he called for Joseph and he expressed to him his final wishes. And, and what he had on his mind in that appointment really reveals the trajectory of his heart. 
Now, I, I, I would think that having stared death in the face multiple times over the course of his life, Jacob would be entirely satisfied with his select property and his royal appointment and his prosperous family, and no doubt he was, but for one thing. And it was this, the assurance that he would be buried in Canaan. Because you see, while God had provided a house for Jacob in Egypt, his home and his heart was really in Canaan, the land promised by God. Promised to Abraham in chapter 15, Isaac in chapter 26, Jacob himself in chapter 28, verse 15. Sidney Gradanus wrote, Jacob will not let any imperial attractions in Goshen turn his head from the promise. He will not be seduced in Egypt. He will be in Egypt, but he will not be of Egypt. Jacob's desire to be buried in Canaan was a declaration of his faith. Not just in God's promise of an earthly homeland, but in God's promise of a heavenly one as well. And of course, that promise was fulfilled years later in the person of Christ, so that wherever we go, we're at home in him, even to the end of the age, even to the end of our life and beyond. So where's home? If you were asked that question right now, where's home? I'm looking at Wally and Doris there and I'm thinking, well, New Jersey's home, New York is home, did some time in Canada, spent some time in uh, Arizona, went to college in Illinois, living in California. Where's home? How you answer that question could very well reveal where your heart is. Is home where you came from? Is home where your stuff is? Or is home where you're headed? Even if your time on this earth is just about over. For Jacob, there was no human promise, especially as as he got near the end of his life. There was no human promise so great that God's promise was not greater still. I remember a colleague of mine who traveled to the rural home of his grandmother who was dying, and she requested that he come because she wanted to receive communion from him. And... uh, And he told me, you know, of all the things that she could have gathered around her, all the persons, uh, all the things she could have done in those dying days, it was communion that she wanted to take. So he said to me, I I gave her the bread, and with all of her strength, she took it and put it in her mouth, and and he said that the the crumbs remained on her lips as she chewed up the bread, and, and then I handed her the cup, and he said, she sucked it dry. It was a memorial. It was a tribute. It was a sign of how she lived and how she would live again. And that's what it was for Jacob. One of the sweetest memories I have is of, uh, uh, was after an evening service at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, where I was serving At the time, I was standing in the center aisle with two octogenarians, two women who were well into their 80s, and 
we were just having casual conversation, but it turned at some point, and we began talking about the challenges of this life, uh, age and uh, illness and death and the hope of life to come. And I don't remember how it happened. I, I do recall it happened without introduction, but uh, uh, Mary Lou Bailey and uh, Alina Mae Welsh and I, standing there under the weight of this present world, but buoyed up by what was to come, we began to sing. I mean, it just, it just came out first quietly. <laughs> standing there in church. The world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Then we picked it up a little bit. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will we do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Brothers and sisters, blessings abound. They abound, blessings of God's power, of God's grace, of God's promise, all of which remind us that there is no evil, no power, no obstacle, no promise so great that God's blessing isn't greater still now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings by which we live and by which we die. I pray that you would help us uh, by way of your spirit um, and the finished work of your son to hold on and to enjoy these great blessings now, but be reminded that there's more. May we encourage each other along the way. We can't do it alone. So may we encourage each other, even on this day, even this morning, as we go from this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.